This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome back to another episode of the Worth Recovery Podcast. I'm Amy. I'm your host here. I'm a sex addict and I have been sober since December 2nd of 2012. Today I want to talk about sobriety and uh, being nine years sober. So it's January when I'm releasing and recording and releasing this episode, January of 2022. But this last December of 2021, I celebrated my nine-year sobriety anniversary. And it was kind of a big day because my little math nerdiness um, got the better of me. And uh, my sobriety date last year, my nine-year anniversary, was a palindrome. If you don't know what a palindrome is, it's a number that's read forward and backwards and it's exactly the same. So 1202-2021, read backwards is 1202-2021. And that was the date of my nine-year sobriety anniversary. It was also kind of fun because it's all the same numbers as my um, original sobriety date. So my original sobriety date is 12-2 of 12, 2012. And this is 12-2 of 21, so the um, numbers are just reversed. And, you know, my math nerdiness, like, just loved that and marinated in all of that really good math stuff on my day. Um, and I always, I've created kind of a ritual for myself, um, things that I do on my sobriety anniversary Things I try to do things that I couldn't do before or didn't feel comfortable doing before I got sober. So one of those was one of those is donate blood. I always try to donate blood on my sobriety anniversary because I can now. And before um, it wasn't probably that I couldn't before. I don't I don't really know actually, but. I didn't feel comfortable answering a lot of the questions that they ask you, and I wasn't really up to date on like any kind of STI testing, um, and so there was some concerns, and I didn't want to confront those concerns. So once I got sober, one of the things I started doing was looking for activities that I could do on my sobriety anniversary that maybe I couldn't have done before or wouldn't have felt comfortable doing before, and one of those is giving blood. I can't always do it on the day that, you know, reality happens and life happens. But this year I was able to do it on the day and I was excited about that. Um, I also buy myself a, a new coin, a new chip every year. Um, in the 12-step tradition, they have uh, sobriety coins or sobriety chips, sometimes they call them, uh, that they give you at certain anniversaries. Um, they can do a monthly uh, or maybe just three or six months or nine months or I do I I have one all the way from one month to one year and then um, uh, after that uh, I have bought myself my own um, anniversary coins or chips uh, on my birthday this year I special ordered one out of the UK um, off of Etsy 
um, because it had, because I could put my own phrase on it. And I wanted to put a phrase that had a lot of meaning to me in my own trauma work this last year, um, in my own therapy work, in my own work that I'm doing. I put a phrase on my coin that just has been really influential to me. And um, I wasn't going to, I was, anyway, uh, it says, I am so proud of you. And that's just been a phrase that, um, that has been influential for me in my own therapy work this year and my own healing work. And, and so I put it on my coin and I love it. I totally love it. Now, a couple days after my sobriety date, I had a coaching call with one of my coaching clients that I work with, um, on sobriety. And she asked me, so how's your life different? How's your life different? Um, now that you've been nine years sober and, and she was just like, kind of, what is your life like? And it was a good question. I wasn't really prepared for it. I hadn't really thought too deeply on that question when she asked, but now a month, almost month and a half later, I've thought really deeply on that question. And so I wanted to share with you a few of the things, um, that have really changed in my life. Um, so I'm going to start just, there was a few obvious ones. Uh, I've gone through five different jobs in the nine years I've been sober, uh, five different careers in those nine years. I moved States. I moved from Washington to Utah. I went back to school and got my master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. I'm now a licensed clinical mental health counselor. I'm also a CSAT. I've completed my CSAT certifications. Um, In those nine years, my mom died. My dad died about six months before uh, I started therapy or recovery. So I've basically lost both my parents, Uh, my grandma, my aunt, my uncle, my grandpa, my great aunt, and another uncle have all died in that time. So there's been a lot of grief and a lot of loss to think about. Um, I bought a new car. That's exciting in this nine years. I started Worth Recovery and I started recovery coaching. I started podcasting, which I have never done before in my life. Uh, Something I also never thought I would do. Um, I've had a lot of failed attempts at a lot of different things and a lot of successful attempts at a lot of different things. But I don't think that's really what she was getting at when she asked me that question. Uh, Though I 100% would not have been able to get through or accomplish those things if I wasn't sober. Uh, Many of those things I think would have broken me um, had I not been sober. In fact, one of the, the whole reason I started to get into sobriety or get into recovery was because one of the main reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the main reasons was my dad was dying. Uh, My dad had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and I just, I just had this gut feeling and this like almost words, almost my gut speaking to me, like, if you don't get help, this will kill you. My dad and I's relationship wasn't perfect and struggled a lot. And I just knew that if I didn't have support or help or figure things out in my life, that his death was, was going to break me. And so I went through a lot of deaths in recovery, uh, so far, I'm sure there'll be more, but so far, but I think what she was really wanted to know is the little things like the little details of my life that have changed because I've been living sober. Um, and how kind of, how does your experience 
in life change with longer term recovery. And not that nine years is really all that long, but, but it is a, it is a significant amount of time. I'm not going to um, deny that because it is, it feels like a long time. It feels like a really long time. So, but nine years, I know people that have been sober a lot longer than that. I have a client that's been sober in NA for 32 years. So I know that there is a lot of, a lot of sobriety and a lot of different fellowships. Um, that's a lot longer than nine years, but I am grateful, very grateful for my nine years. And I'm grateful to have this opportunity to reflect on some of the gifts of recovery, if you want to call it that, of longer term recovery, gift of longer term sobriety and longer term recovery. So I have, um, I tried to do a top 10, but I couldn't quite get to 10. I'm at eight, but maybe I'll get to 10 during the podcast while I share with you. So I have kind of a list here and they're not in any particular order. Um, but these are the things that have been significant for me, uh, in longer term recovery and changes in my life. So number one, what others think of me or about me matters way less. So others' opinions of me matter less. I think that comes with age, but I also think that comes with sobriety. Um, and it's, it's more about, I know that their opinions and their ideas and their thoughts about me aren't really about me. <laughs> if you haven't read The Four Agreements, uh, next week, our next podcast is a, is a worth reading podcast. And I'm going to talk about The Four Agreements. And it's a book that I read years ago. Um, and I'm not going to share a whole lot right now about it because I have a whole podcast episode about it. But one of the agreements is to not take anything personally. And the author talks about how whether people like you or don't like you is not really about you. And it's about them and their experiences and how they perceive you. And that has been so helpful for me. But it's also something that we learn in recovery. I know in most of the S fellowships, they will say the phrase, um, what others uh, think about me. I don't, I don't need to know. I think that's how it goes. I don't need to know what others think about me. Oh no, I know. It's what others think about me is none of my business. That's what it is. What others think about me is none of my business. And that's something that I learned early on, um, in my 12 step experience, particularly the people would repeat over and over again. It took me a long time to really internalize that and digest that. But it's really freeing to recognize that if others respond to me poorly, that's not about me. That's about them. If others respond to me generously or they like what I'm saying or they like what I have to share or offer, that's also not about me. That's about them. That's about they're resonating with something that I said. That's not about me. That's about them. And I know I've had experiences where I speak a lot and I've had experiences where I speak and I get both sides. Some people really love what I'm saying and some people hate what I'm saying. And and so I've had both of those experiences in the same room at the same time. And understanding that their responses or their opinions about me or their thoughts about me is not about me, but about them has been very freeing in my life. My job is to make sure that what I'm saying, how I'm living and what I'm doing is meets my standard and that I have don't have regrets about what I said or did. And if I am meeting that standard and I don't have regrets, then what they're saying or what their opinion is doesn't matter. I think that comes with a lot of longer term sobriety and recognition. Uh, number two, 
I feel like in life, I am way more curious than I used to be. I'm curious about people and places and things and hows and whys. I'm curious about how things work. I find I'm much more curious about like mechanics and different types of things. I I just feel so much more curious in my life in general. And there's a couple reasons I think that that's a gift of recovery. Um, First is to be curious takes up space and time. It takes space and time, mental space and time to be curious. And I didn't have that before. I didn't have a lot of mental space because it was preoccupied in addictive cycles, addictive cycles, or it was preoccupied with other thoughts and ideas or obsessions. And so I didn't have the mental space to do that. And I definitely didn't feel like I had time to be curious um, or time to work things out or or things or figure things out. I was always on a deadline or always moving forward because that was the way that I distracted myself from how bad I felt about different things or the pain that I didn't want to experience. So I would distract myself by um, by not being curious and then by moving, uh, being just really busy. And so I didn't have the time. I didn't have the mental space to be curious. But I find now I'm curious about everything. I want to know how everything works. And not just about people and places, but also, like I said, mechanics, um, plumbing. I, I find myself really curious about a lot of things. And I am enjoying that. I want to read a lot more. I'm just reading a book about the history of the hospital um, and how we ended up with hospitals and I just want to be curious and I just want to learn more information. And I love that I have that space and that time. I think the other reason we don't aren't curious when we're in addictions is because uh, being curious requires reflection. And we don't want to reflect when we're in addiction uh, because we don't want to look at the pain or the damage that we've caused. So I find that I'm way more curious. Uh, number three, I feel like I have a much more solid sense of self. And when I say that, what I mean is I used to be someone who I would lose myself when I got into relationships. Um, I wouldn't have opinions. I, I just couldn't hold on to who I was when I was in a relationship. I would mold myself to be whoever that person needed me to be. And that wasn't just romantic relationships, that was friendships, uh, that was professional relationships, that was relationships with family. I couldn't show up as a person as myself. I would lose myself and kind of mold and shape myself to be whoever they needed me to be at that time. And I would lose myself when I was in those relationships. Uh, Sometimes that meant I would just really play small But sometimes that also meant to overcompensate, I would play really big and I just didn't really feel ever comfortable and like myself. And recovery has given me that ability to be myself and hold on to myself, even in difficult conversations, even in, you know, relationships that I, I don't acquiesce. Um, I, one of my first relationships in recovery I was dating um, a man, I was still in Seattle and I was dating a man and we ended up breaking up and I actually am the one that instigated the breakup. Um, And it was, there's a lot of different reasons, but I'm not going to go into that because this is one part of the story I want to tell. Months later, after the breakup, we ran into each other on the street. We 
worked kind of kitty corner and it was lunchtime and we were going to lunch and we ran into, we ran into each other and we ended up, he invited me and we ended up going to lunch together. And one of the things he told me in that lunch, we talked about our breakup and just a variety of things. But one of the things he told me was he was dating someone new and he just, I mean, looked me straight in the eye and said, you're prettier than her. You're smarter than her. Um, I enjoyed spending time with you more than I enjoyed spending time with her. But with you, I never knew what you were thinking or where I, where I stood. Like I never knew. You never shared with me your emotions. You never shared with me where I stood or what the status of our relationship was. And he said, with her, I never have to guess. And that's, that's super important to me. And I still feel a little pain when I talk about that, but I'm so grateful for that feedback because that was me losing myself in a relationship, right? I didn't, I couldn't have an opinion when I was with him. I, um, I couldn't talk about my own emotions. I couldn't talk about my own feelings. And as painful as that was to hear, I am also really grateful that he would share that with me because I had to learn from that so that I could be a person. Um, and that's one of the gifts that I have received in recovery. Okay. Number four, I am a lot less angry. (laughs) I, I was kind of an angry person while I didn't, again, I couldn't really hold on to myself, but I had a lot of anger, um, outside of relationship and it ate me alive. Like literally I got, holes in my intestines because I was so angry and would just, anyway, have all sorts of stress and problems. And I, it took me a lot of time in recovery to work through a lot of that anger, but I am angry a lot less. I am a lot less angry than I was. I still get angry. I'm not going to say I don't, um, but it's a lot less often and it takes a lot less effort and time to work through it or to come back to you know, emotional regulated state. It was really funny because one of the things I love to do when I'm angry is tear up paper. And I know I've talked about that on the podcast before, but um, I talk about it a lot with my coaching clients too. Like I, I will take a piece of paper and I rip it in half and then I rip that in half and then I just go as small as I possibly can. And there's something very satisfying to, about that for me. It's one of my strategies I use when I'm angry and I can't go to a batting cage or do something else. Um, if I'm just have to stay at my desk or need to emotionally regulate really quickly, I will rip up paper. I will shred it. So fast forward. I mean, I've talked about that for a long time, but it's really funny is, um, about a week ago I was going through an old box. I'm cleaning up some old boxes and going through things. And I found some writings that my mom wrote about me when I was really little that I've never read before, um, between ages of one and two. And she writes several times about how much I love to tear up paper. And I just, I, I loved it. I loved finding that little treasure in that writing that from a young age, I have loved to tear up paper. And it's still something that's very authentic for me, that it's just really soothing for me to rip up and shred paper. So anyway, I get angry a lot less in recovery. And if I do get angry, I can regulate a lot quicker. Okay, number five, we're almost halfway through my list here. Number five, I am a lot less fearful than I was when I was living in addiction. 
I feel a lot safer and I feel a lot more stable. I recently had uh, someone who is not an addict and has not had addictive behavior listen to episode zero of my podcast where I talk about my story and I share um, kind of what what my addictive behaviors were and what was going on and, and things like that. And she came to me afterwards, um, a few days later, and her very, the very first thing that she said to me was, you could have died. And she was very upset about it. She's like, you could have died. Like, do you know how dangerous Craigslist is? And do you know? And she was going through all of these things and about how dangerous that lifestyle was and is, is, not was, is. Um, and I... Of course, when I was in it, I did not know um, how dangerous it was, or I did, and I pushed that aside. Um, but the longer I stay sober, the longer I have really come to terms and understood just how dangerous a lot of the things that I was doing were. And also, I've looked at my own sense of safety and how I develop my own sense of safety. I I think that one of the pitfalls that we fall into in recovery, well, I would say in addiction, is that we externalize our sense of safety. So we start to say like, I will feel safe when this happens, when this happens, when I'm in a relationship, when when he breaks up, you know, with so-and-so or like we start to externalize that sense of, of safety and we put a lot of these conditions and, and things on it. And one of the things I've learned about in recovery is how to internalize my sense of safety. And what that means is, I know I can protect myself. I know I can keep myself safe. But more importantly, I know I can handle whatever comes. Whatever comes to me today, I have the ability to handle that and keep myself safe um, throughout that. That's not something I, that is something, wow, I'm like crazy on words today. That is something that I never felt in recovery. I mean, in addiction. Ugh. That is something I never felt in addiction. In addiction, I always felt unsafe and I wasn't sure I could handle what was going to happen to me next or what could come. Even small things like small car accidents or a bumper, you know, I hit my bumper on something. Like I never knew if I would be able to handle that. Um, and the internalized sense of safety I have now, which is I can handle whatever comes to me and living life on life's terms is so much better. It's so much better. It's just this idea that like no one, no one can surprise me. Like I'm going to be able to work through it and that I have the resources and skills to be able to handle those things. And if I don't, I know I can ask for help. And that's just a whole different state of mind. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that to people who haven't lived in that state um, or lived in the state of fear. So one of the things is I feel a lot less fearful and have a lot, a greater sense of safety. Uh, number six, I feel worthy, honestly worthy of love and belonging. Um, I've never felt that way growing up. I never, I, I have writings to prove it from young journals. I never felt that way in high school. I never felt that way in my twenties. And the further I got into addictive behaviors in my 20s and my 30s, I never felt that way. I never actually felt worthy of love or belonging. But I 
I do now. I really, honestly, authentically do. I remember my first therapist, Aaron, uh, we were talking about something and he asked me, you know, do you, do you have a place like in your heart for compliments to even land or to, to sit there in your heart and for you to even take that in? And I remember thinking like, no, no, I don't. And as I studied and learned in recovery, like there's this passage in the white book um, under the problem where they say we took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves. Conning ourselves time and again that the next one would save us, we were really losing our life. And that is absolutely true for me in addiction, for sure. Um, I thought that the next relationship, the next man would save me. Um, but it's it's even bigger than that. It was way bigger than that for me. Like I was working at that time, I was working at a job and the only feedback I got from anybody was that I was doing an awesome job. Any, that's all anybody said. You were, you're doing great. And they would tell me like specific things that were going great. And yet I always felt like I was going to be fired. Like it's that, it's that sense of safety, right? Like I just could never feel like it was good enough and I could never feel like what they were saying was true or that what they were saying, you know, was, was real. I just, I couldn't feel that way. And when he asked me that, like, do you have a place for compliments to land? I thought, well, I mean, no, I don't. Like, it, it's that whole idea of, like, we took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves. Like, I didn't feel like I was doing a good job. So I would take that from others, but I would never, it was never enough. And he gave me this analogy, and, and this is how I feel about my life right now, for sure. But he talked about how, like, in our heart, we have to have a little bucket, <laughs> Um, a little bucket where, you know, good things land, right? Compliments can land in there and the good feedback can land in there and love can land in there and belonging can land in there. And we have to have this bucket and the bucket holds all of those good things and all that good information that we get about ourselves and that validation and that confirmation and affirmations about who we are and, and what we provide and what we offer. And we have to have this bucket so that it sinks, sinks, sinks into our heart. I really cannot talk tonight. So it sinks into our heart. And, and he told me that. And I remember thinking like, yeah, okay, that's, that's true. And it came to me a few weeks later, but I have a bucket. I think we all have a bucket. The problem is that I don't have a bottom to my bucket. So it comes in, but it just goes straight out. It just goes straight out over and over again. So it comes in and it's out and in and it's out and it's in and it's out. And what I learned or what I realized is that the bottom of that bucket is my own self-worth. It's how I feel about myself. Like if I don't, if I don't think that I am worthy of belonging or love, then there's no bottom to that bucket. And so people can dump whatever they want into it. It's not going to stay. But when I feel, when I put that bottom in, I slide that bottom in that says like, yeah, I'm, I am worthy of love. I'm worthy of belonging. I'm worthy of acceptance. When I can slide that in, then all that feedback that I get sits in that bucket and it sits there for a while. And it kind of, my heart gets to marinate in all of that good feedback. And 
that has really changed for me in recovery. I came into recovery and I had no space for that. None, zero. I couldn't hold on to anything. And the longer I've been in recovery, the more I realize as I have put that bottom in that bucket, the the more I can marinate in those things, the more I can recognize people's appreciation or the way that um, I can feel love and the way that I feel belonging um, changes as as I slide in that bottom of the bucket. And that's been hard work. It's been really hard work, but it's been really rewarding work and really, really worth it. Okay, uh, that was number six. So number seven is... Um, the, uh, I would say the ability to dream again. And that's been, that's been a long process. Um, when I first started recovery, it was a lot of like doom and gloom. I mean, there was a lot of pain to feel a lot of pain. There was a lot of rejection. There was a lot of old trauma to work through. There's a lot of old feelings to figure out, um, old experiences and then all the current stuff too. There was just a lot to work through and it was painful and it was difficult. Um, it still sometimes feels painful and difficult, but there came this place years ago, I would say maybe, maybe three or four years in there came this place of acceptance. This is my life. This is who I am. And and that, that was a great place to be because I think that that's one of the first steps in recovery is, is this acceptance process of this is, this is my life. This is who I am. And until I can get to that acceptance place, I'm always going to need an escape. I'm always going to need an addictive behavior to pull me out of acceptance and pull me out of reality. So when I come to that acceptance place, that's, that's amazing. And it took me, it took me a few years. I think people can get there sooner, but it took me a few years to really get to that acceptance place of this is who I am. This is my life. And this is who I am. And then I sat in that acceptance place for a while because, you know, that's one of like the big trendy things right now, radical acceptance or acceptance of everything as it is. But there's another step I feel And then we sometimes miss that. And that's reclaiming the ability to dream or the ability to create or the ability to hope that my life is going to be different or change my life, I would say, even like that empowerment that comes with, I want different things going forward. And that's something that I'm just starting in the last maybe year and a half to two years, maybe to really reclaim in my life is that ability to dream. And I love it. You guys, It this is like, sometimes it's feeling like you're back in that young state when people are asking you like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And you feel like the whole, everything's possible. Like everything's possible. And that's how I feel right now. I'm, I didn't expect to get emotional about that, but that's how I feel right now. Everything is possible. And that's not something that I felt in early recovery at all, for sure. That's not even something I felt when I started podcasting or I started worth recovery. I, I didn't feel like that. That's something that just has come in the last maybe year, year and a half. Like I said, as I've continued to dig deeper, continue to do more therapy work, continue to figure things out in my own life. There's this new sense of possibility and 
I love it. I love it. And I know that comes with longer term recovery. As we really dig deep and figure out what we want now that we have accepted our life and we've accepted what's been in the past and what's happened to us and we understand how it impacted us and we can mitigate that impact and we can do all these things, we can now look to the future and say anything is possible. And I I love that. Totally love that. Okay, number eight. Number eight is I have a much um, I have, <laughs> I have a less, less tolerance for chaos, much less tolerance for chaos. I don't know that I recognize just how chaotic my life was or has been in recover in addiction or even prior to like full-blown addiction in my life, how chaotic things were or the chaos around that. And even in recovery, early recovery, there was a lot of, um, chaos and a lot of changes and just I endured a lot of chaos thinking that it was normal telling myself that it was normal telling myself I should be able to handle this I just need to push through and it'll be fine a lot of those things and as I've gotten more and more deeper into my recovery and sobriety I have much less tolerance for chaos that comes and that looks like um my house is way cleaner I'm much more organized than I used to be. Um, I am not double booking myself. I used to do that all the time. Um, I used to procrastinate and avoid completing things or difficult conversations or telling people no. Um, There was a lot of things that just were chaotic in my life. And that's so much different. I have a much less tolerance for that in my life. And it's great. I... I think I went through a phase of it feeling a little boring, like, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Because I already took care of everything. (laughs) But that's beautiful in and of itself. Along with that, like less tolerance for chaos, kind of number nine, I guess I'll call it, but um, in the same realm is I am a lot more financially stable. Um, I think a lot of the chaos in my life was financial or has been financial. And that's just not the case anymore. And it really is a, a, a little bit boring financially. And I love it. I love that I don't have to worry about where my bills are getting paid from or how I'm going to handle things. Like there's a lot more financial stability and viability. And that's awesome and amazing. And I love it. And I'm never going back. I'm never, ever going back to that level of chaos that I thought was normal. Sometimes clients come in and I listen to them talk and I just <laughs> have that overwhelmed feeling of like, wow, that's a lot of chaos. And I will, I will say that. I wish someone had said that to me earlier on, like, wow, that is a lot of chaos. Um, or I've even said to clients, like, you have a pretty high tolerance for chaos. And they're always kind of taken back by that. And most of them, they come back and say, you're right, I do. Like, this is a lot of chaos. And it's really difficult to kind of break that pattern, but it can be broken. You don't have to live in that level of chaos that addiction brings into your life. Okay, so number 10. I did make it to number 10. Look at that. Um, so number 10 is a little a little hard for me, I guess. Um, I am a huge believer in the 12-step process and the 12-step uh, way of life. I am 
becoming less and less so in some of the shaming processes of the 12 steps. So my number 10 is I am a lot less attached to labels like relapse, slip, um, even dates. I feel a lot less attached to those things than I did earlier on in recovery. I'm not saying that I'm going to stop counting because I'm not. I'm going to continue to count because it's an accomplishment in my life. But I also am recognizing the much bigger picture of stories and trauma and experiences. I'm also recognizing the importance of recovery and the importance of staying with it and trying again, even when things don't go the way that we want them to. I'm also recognizing as we get deeper into sobriety, we have to explore a lot of things sexually. For instance, you know, when we talk about sex addiction, particularly as a process addiction, that puts it in the same realm as like food addiction or spending or gambling, these processes that we go through um, over time. And the thing is like, we can't stop eating. That's what makes treating food addictions Um, difficult because we can't just stop eating or we'll die. We also just can't stop spending money because we have to uh, work, you know, we have to work, we have to pay our bills, we've got to do a lot of things. And so it's not so black and white as we sometimes want to make it out to be. And I am a believer that sex addiction is the same way. It's not as black and white as we want to make it out to be. But that is a belief that I have come to over time. Um, And I really believe that there is a lot of power and a lot of need in the beginning to have very strict sobriety guidelines and to have a sobriety date and to kind of have some things that we use as behavioral techniques and modifications, right? Like I, I know, I know, I fully know that there were a lot of times in my early recovery days where I would lay in bed and I would out loud say my sobriety date, 12 to 12, 12 to 12, 12 to 12. And it was like my mantra of, I don't want to lose that date. And if I call him or if I get online or if I do this, I will lose that date. And having that date and having that marker helped me to stay sober. And, and it was really great. And it was really, really helpful. And I also can recount just as many times before that date where I felt really shamed and I felt really embarrassed about losing my sobriety. Or I had at one point, like my early days, like six months. And then I almost six, I had like five and a half. And then I lost my sobriety and acted out. And, and there can be, there can be in some 12 step programs, a shaming culture around that. And I am just not a fan of that. And the more sobriety I get, the more I understand this need for strictness. But I also understand that when we're working through trauma, life can be messy and the situation can be messy and the feelings can be messy. And if I have to figure out healthy sexuality within a relationship, that's going to be messy. And there might be times when it's unhealthy because I'm trying to figure out what healthy feels like. And there's a back and forth process. And when done in consultation and when done appropriately, that is a process that we have to go through so that we can regain a healthy sexual 
relationship and we can regain healthy sexuality in our lives. And so as I have grown in my own recovery, I've become a lot less attached to those things. So that's one of my gifts I feel like of recovery is that ability to have healthy sexuality in my life and be willing to work through the messiness of that um, to figure it out. So there you go. That's my top 10 list of things that I have learned in my nine years of sobriety. Like I said, not that nine years is all that long. I hope that's helpful for you. I hope that you can gain some perspective and maybe have some goals that you can look at um, for what your sobriety can give to you and what your recovery can give to you. Um, Yeah. So I hope you remember that no matter where you're at in that recovery journey, whether it's just starting, whether you're nine years in like me, whether you're 25 years in, wherever you're at, that you are worth recovery. You are worth the effort that it takes to make that happen. And if you don't believe that, I do. So you can trust me until you're ready to believe that. Remember that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.